Hi, it's Terry from No Crumbs Left, and I'm sitting across from my friend Froggy at Froggy Meadow Farms. And I know Froggy because I'm a very regular at the Green City Market. And if anybody watches me on Instagram, we've seen many times over the years, Froggy and I have done lives together, which have been really exciting. And I wanted a chance to speak on with him one-on-one and ask some of my questions in a way that would allow us to have a more permanent record. So, Hi, Froggy. Hey, how you doing, Terry? And I know that's not your real name, so tell us, what is your real name? So I'm uh, Jerry Boone. Uh, my farm is Froggy Meadow Farm, as Terry already told you. And where is that? We're located in, uh, well, near Beloit, Wisconsin, which is just across the border. I love that. Am I the only one that calls you Froggy, or do other people? Uh, unsurprisingly, many people have chosen to call me Froggy. I love it. And uh, at first, it was a little uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but then I realized I'm so proud of my farm. Why would I not share the same name with it? It's very exciting. I mean, people call me No Crumbs Left, and there are ways that I as much associate with No Crumbs Left and as Terry. And when I went once to the you know Green City Market and said— I love you guys. You can use me pro bono. I'm a friend to the market. And I kept saying, I'm no crumbs left. And the woman kept saying, but what's your name? And I kept saying, no crumbs left. And I realized, like, I, I associate it with. So I think it's a positive thing. Yeah, I do, too. It's, I, I know the feeling. So we're going to talk today about a bunch of different things, local and season, genetically modified. But we're going to start with onions because you and I are joined by a love of onions and your farm is, tell me a little bit, we're going to get to more about your farm, but what I want to know is, are you an onion farm? I mean, to just tell me that part of it. Uh, well, our farm specializes in alliums, and alliums uh, cover a variety of plants, such as garlic, shallots, and onions. Uh, we decided to specialize those in the beginning for very practical reasons. Number one, I love all of them. Number two, they were storage crops, which allowed us to sell over a long period of time versus crops that you have to sell immediately. So I um, have been storing about your onions. I'm currently, I'm a girl who like loves to eat seasonally and locally, and I'm in love with your, uh, are they called candy apple onions? Red candy apple onions. Yes. Yeah, a, so new, a new product for us. They're small, they're beautiful, they make the most beautiful onions, they're bright, bright red, and so I'm a gal that loves to eat seasonally, which means I, I get what's of the season, I enjoy it. Um, and, you know, recently, I mean, the other day, I thought about, like I bought $100 worth of onions because <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you've told me they can store through March. And everybody's like, wait a minute, you can store through March. So tell us a little bit about that. How is that possible? I'm going to do it. Well, I am doing it. So I'll be able to report back. Okay. But tell us how do you store it? How does it work? Well, so storage of any vegetables is a complicated matter. And what I'm going to give you is the perfect way to store onions. Your job as the storer of onions is to get as close to that as possible. So onions prefer 32 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, complete darkness, and very good air circulation with low humidity. So where do we find those in the everyday home? Pretty much nowhere. So we try to approach them as closely as possible. If you have a cool area in your house, you'll find the coolest area, keep them in darkness, and store them in a container, which allows a good airflow. But let me, i got to just interrupt you for a minute. I put them in a box, a box that's not terribly deep. So I don't know that I have both total darkness and airflow. Okay, well, that is the trade-off. You're going to have okay. to make trade-offs. Okay. Because your refrigerator has the perfect temperature and darkness, it has zero airflow and high humidity. So you make many trade-offs. You have to look at your storage area, your home, and decide where you can closely... 
replicate each of those conditions. You may have to give up one. Okay. Uh, if you wanted to order them importance, I would say that uh, coolness is coolness. the, the okay. most important factor. Darkness is important. Uh, low humidity is and uh, airflow are less important for the actual storage of the onions. However, they are important to prevent mold on right, the onions. Right, right. So your refrigerator is a good uh, bet if you have no cool places in the house. And I'm thinking that my garage might be fantastic. Many, many people choose to store them out in garages or in basements. One caveat is you must not let them freeze. 32 right. is the minimum. Okay. So if they freeze, they will become soft, unusable, and rot very quickly okay. when they thaw. Well, I'm willing to make the investment because I really want to see, and I like sort of, you know, what I love about food is that we're always learning something new all the time. And here's something that I just know nothing about. And so, and I love onions and I'm dedicated to them. So I'm willing to do the research. I'm always willing to fail on my way to succeeding. So that's my thought for the day on that. I want to ask you a little bit about this. We hear a lot about genetically modified. I think the the assumption is this is always bad. Is genetically modified always bad? Are there some things that we love that we eat all the time that that happen to be genetically modified? Uh, Genetically modified organisms are a very complicated subject. Okay. Are they bad? There is no current research showing they're bad. People's concern is generally over the unknowns and modifying genetic code within a creature or a plant or, or anything like that. They're uh, genetically modified for specific purposes, which are always good. The concern is we don't know the direction those purposes will take. Uh, for years, forever really, we've been genetically modifying organisms in a very simple manner, and that's the creation of hybrids where we crossbreed different plants. And that's perceived as a safer alternative. Uh, genetically modified organisms is direct manipulation of the genetic code. And nobody really knows the long-term things that could occur. And that's the fear with genetic modified them. There is no health risk known at present, but that's a problem, the unknown. Right. But what about this idea of natural breeding? Um, What in your, let's say, market is a product that you have that sort of came about as, or what's an example of natural crossbreeding? That we might know about. Well, uh, typically what we find in a farm such as mine, uh, we uh, stick with heirloom plants. Heirloom plants are what they call open pollinated. And they are a plant that is not crossbred. And the strain is maintained by carefully isolating the plants which produce seed. And that's what we're looking for. That is actual natural breeding that we control. Uh, next alternative is crossbreeding, creation of hybrids, where we'll take two separate uh, plants of similar type, allow them to mix the pollen, and uh, to create a seed that is a hybrid of both. Now, the problem with hybrids is hybrid seeds do not reproduce, so you must constantly be crossbreeding to create them. As you can guess, that is a major plus for seed manufacturers right. because we can't plant our own seeds. So many of the self-sustaining farms, such as myself, we only use open-pollinated plants because we can replant the seeds we grow. However, hybrids often have very nice characteristics, very useful characteristics. So they are an alternative. Would I say that any of the alternatives, uh, open-pollinated, hybrids, or GMO, are bad? 
They're not bad. They're different. Each serves a different purpose. So that leads me to a question. I've heard a lot about this disappearance of heirloom vegetables, you know, or some vegetables becoming extinct. It's like what I've heard is that there used to be around 5,000 heirloom vegetables, and now there are a couple of hundred. Can you speak to that? Sure. So the uh, heirloom vegetables are the open pollinated type crops I was talking about. What makes heirloom vegetables special is they have been they've been continued through the years by families, by small groups, thus the name heirloom as you pass the seed down through the family. The seed should remain true because it's open pollinated. It's not crossbred. And what's happened is many of these varieties have some special characteristic which is very unique, like excellent taste, excellent color, excellent flavor. However, they may have negative characteristics, like they don't hold well, which means they can't be shipped or or stored. Because of those negative characteristics, they are not uh, well-suited to commercial sales. Since they're not well-suited to commercial sales, only these small families are continuing the crop. If the family line is broken or the seed is lost, these vegetables disappear. In, say, the past 10, 20, 30 years, the importance of heirloom vegetables was re-recognized, and many of us are trying to keep those seed lines alive. But many times they pass away just because of the very nature. It's, it's a very inefficient method of continuing to produce seeds. Now, as I spoke earlier, seed companies, they have very little impetus to promote these open-pollinated heirloom varieties because we can just grow our own seed. So they tend to push us towards hybrids. And hybrids are very good uh, because they'll combine many of the characteristics, many of the positive characteristics, and fewer of the negative characteristics. You know, I'm a really proponent of local NNCs, and that's that's something that I came to. I don't think when I was 20 or in my 30s I really knew anything about that. But it's um, I love farmers. I love farmers' markets. I feel so alive there. I think it's the best form of, like, really raising your vibration and free entertainment. And by the way, here's a little secret. I think farmers markets are a great place to meet a possible romantic interest because you really meet passionate people that are very excited about life. So, Froggy, why local? Why in season? Many, many reasons why. One of the primary reasons is uh, the environment. If you don't eat local, food can be shipped tremendous distances using fossil fuels, Uh, In addition, it creates uh, a whole transport system that we then have to carry. I mean, it's also for reasons like um, because it's more delicious, you know, because it's actually better for your body, right? I mean, there are just so many inherent reasons why it's a good idea. And it gives us a chance to experience the heirloom vegetables we were just talking about. These vegetables can't be shipped. The only way you're going to find them is from a local farmer who brings them directly from his farm to you. And you can get better quality. Uh, Long shipping times uh, will decrease quality of the products. Right. Absolutely delicious. So as a cook, I love it because I really love eating things that are in season. I mean, I delight in the moment of it's peaches and they're here and it's summer and you celebrate it and you're, you're having peaches and caprese and you're grilling peaches and you're making a peach cobbler and you're maybe freezing peaches and making peach jam. But then come... You know, uh, November, December, I don't have peaches, and I don't go out and buy peaches. I know if they're in the store, you know, that doesn't mean that that they're local and in season. And not to say that in California the seasons aren't different because maybe that they are, but I delight in that. 
And as a cook, it's really fun to move into looking forward. And then, you know, the sad moment of like saying goodbye. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Aside from the practical and environmental concerns, there's a psychological aspect to this that just makes it wonderful. The anticipation, the regret when it's gone, and, and just a general awareness of seasonality really improves us as people. Why do you think it's important important to support local farms? Well, there's a, the only way we're going to experience this local seasonal food we're talking about is by supporting local farms. And the only way we're going to bring back the interconnectivity between people, uh, you never talk to the farmers who are running Dole. You never talk to the farmers who are creating Prego tomato sauce. You can talk to me. You can see pictures of what I can do. You see the passion behind it. It's not a nameless, faceless can on a shelf. Right. And I know that people love to come and meet you. Um, so many people who follow, you know, say to me, I went and I met Froggy. And I know that you're um, I know that you're a change maker. I mean, I know that you have a real quiet way about you, but I know that you're talking to one person at a time and that you create change for people. And in the years that we've been friends through the market, I've seen that and I um, I, just the grace that that extends to other people is so wonderful. You know, when I started farming, I thought I didn't like interacting with people. I thought I went to the farm to get away from people. But once I started interacting with people about something I'm passionate about, it became my favorite part of farming. I love to go there to the market and uh, and just focus on one person and interact with them almost intimately about food, something, a passion we all share. Well, one of the things I love about going to the farmer's market is I love meeting the farmers. I love talking to them. They always have so much to teach me. I have so much to learn. There's just always new information. And they're also really about the exchange of information. You know, they want to know, what am I doing this? You know, how am I enjoying cooking it? Let's just talk a little bit about your farm. So I know that you're actually your farm is different than other farms, and we'd like to know a little bit about. Tell us about that. Sure. So say you go to Green City Market or any other large market, you'll see many, many farms there, and the diversity among types of farms is really amazing. But it's behind the scenes, and most of us don't know about it. We have farms at Green City Market that have hundreds of acres of organic production, and on the other end, we have my farm, small uh, farm, ten acres, just three, four acres of production. We are off-grid. Uh, we have no electricity. We use a lot of old methods. Uh, I run my farm with one assistant, and that's it. Many other farms have 50 people working there. Uh, quite a few farms have one field of crops larger than my entire farm. I love Froggy Meadow because of the intimacy of the place. Everything that you purchase at the farmer's market was handled by me. And I care. I, I care. I love that. That's so beautiful. And I yeah. know you do. Yeah. So off-grid, I mean, wow, that's big. So tell me, like, and I, you know, I've known you for years. I've been a customer. I didn't even know that until recently. And I love that you're one of those people. Everything there is to know about Froggy doesn't come out in five minutes. And if everything comes out about someone in five minutes, that's a little bit of a problem. Yeah. So I love when I, you know, you're kind of like an onion and the layers and that we get to sort of <laughs> discover these different parts of you. Why off-grid? Well, uh, when I started the farm, I was intending to have a self-sufficient farm for myself. I quickly found out about property taxes, and I had to pay property taxes, which made me have to have an income. I could not retire to my farm and live alone, so 
I began to invest in the farm and build it into an income-producing farm. And I guess I'm just so passionate about it, I let everything else fall to the wayside. Every penny we had to invest went to crops, equipment, and the farm itself. In fact, uh, for 10 years, the farm's been in production 10 years, and no electricity. There's not even a house on my farm. Wow. I literally... I literally live in a tent mm-hmm. in the barn and focus everything on the farm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be at sometimes a year a hardship. It can be quite difficult when mm-hmm. it gets below zero in the winter, but I use a lot of old-fashioned methods to uh, to get by. Mm-hmm. Now, just last year, uh, we were the recipient of a grant, which has allowed us to uh, create a uh, walk-in cooler, which has really helped our business. And so we do have an electric line that runs to the walk-in cooler. But otherwise, we use kerosene lamps, solar panels, all sorts of old-fashioned, uh, old-fashioned devices to get by. Wood stoves in the winter. It's it's really unique. It's really wow. unusual. It's, so, are you cooking on the wood stove? I mean, how, how do you cook? In the winter, we cook mm-hmm. on the wood stove. Uh, in the summer, we cook on outside fires and with butane grills, other fairly primitive methods. But this is—I've been doing this for ten years. To me, it's completely normal now. I mean, and how did you get into it? So you didn't grow up being a farmer. Uh, uh, I grew up on a farm. And like many young men on farms, I raced away from the farm as fast as I could. Why would anyone want to live that life? And I became a ship captain and went to sea for 25 years. Wow. When I decided to retire, I made the insane decision to move on to a farm. But it was what I knew, what I grew up with. And I knew I was going to do it better than the way I grew up. And in some ways, I have. Uh, I, uh, I really love living on the farm now. And I love the way we, we run the farm. It's a complete freedom. We're not tied into grids. We're not tied into anything. Uh, it's, it's a good life. Well, you're passionate about it, and it, yeah. and it shows. <laughs> Tell me about the viability of small farms in today's world. What does that look like moving forward? It's a harsh but, uh, but positive picture. People have become very much aware of small farms, of their needs, and of what they can produce. Um, and it's, it's, it's a good thing, but it's a, tough, it's a tough business. It's for people who work hard. The financial rewards are not great. However, there are many other rewards self-satisfaction, and making a difference. I love that. That's a, that's a Fred Turner comment. That's my dad. <laughs> my dad really taught us a lot about making a difference. It's what he was passionate about. And so for my sisters and I, that's the same thing. So going forward for small farms, what else do we need to know about that? Well, as I said, the picture is, is not grim. It's positive. And we're just going to have to have a lot of folks understand that uh, farms need support. 24-7, 365 days a year. Support us, and we will keep providing you with great products and knowledge and personal interaction, all the things you want from a small farm. So support, I mean, what does that look like? It looks like coming to the farmer's market and buying from your local farmers. That's right. That's right. Uh, is there, what, what, more, what more can we do? Uh, some farms use a CSA model, which is useful, where you purchase shares and then receive products uh, throughout the year. We don't do that. Uh, We choose to follow just the market model. Uh, And there's many, many ways you can help. Uh, Supporting markets themselves is quite helpful because they give us the venue we need to uh, sell our products. 
one of the things do is giving, I think it's Giving Tuesdays coming up. It's after Thanksgiving and Black Friday. Um, and one of the things on Tuesday is Giving Tuesday. And so one of the campaigns I work on is Giving Tuesday. And what I ask people to do is I make a donation to the my farmer's market. And I say at whatever level people can contribute. Because giving really is for all of us in a way. And those who have less, give less. But that's one thing I like to do is I like on Giving Tuesday to say give to your local farmers, give to your local farmer's market. Find a way to support large or small. That's a great idea. Uh, Green City Market has many programs where you can help support them, and they have many, many programs that support we farmers and the community at large. So that's a, that's a great idea for Tuesdays. And it could be in your area. For me, it's Green City Market. You know, for So it's wherever you live. I want to talk about tomatoes for a little bit. Um, it, it feels like the tomatoes have been bred to look beautiful, but a lot of flavor has gone out of them. And I just, it's like, tell me about that. Am I crazy? No, no, you're not crazy at all. That is so true. Tomatoes are a very difficult crop to handle. They're also a difficult crop to grow. You've got many problems with disease, with funguses, with insects. You, And then once you have your tomato, you've got tremendous problems with transport and storage. So the hybrid types we've discussed were developed over the years to address all of those problems. Unfortunately, when you crossbreed, you gain and lose. And one of the things we lost is flavor. Flavor was often sacrificed for improved storage, transportability, uh, disease, or insect resistance. And once they're gone, they're gone unless we preserve it through the heirloom varieties. And that's one of the things we do at Froggy Meadow. We don't grow any hybrids. And we pay for that because hybrids are uh, very much more productive than the heirlooms. We probably only manage to harvest half of the heirlooms that we grow. The rest are not of high enough quality to bring to the market. And we suffer a loss because of that. But the great flavor that heirlooms brings brings us customers who care, and those are the customers we want, customers, knowledgeable customers, customers who care and uh, will enjoy these great heirloom varieties. And I think you have probably a lot of chefs. I mean, I always get to the market early because I know the chefs are there and they're getting the best stuff. Do you have local chefs that come to you and get oh, your yeah. products? Yeah, we have local chefs. Now, my farm is small, as I mentioned earlier, and we're unable to provide some of the larger restaurants with the quantities they need. But the small artisanal chefs out there, they love us and we love them. We have new items that they love. We have uh, the small quantities that they want. And so we, we fit together quite well. I love it. I love it. And I cook sort of like I'm a small restaurant. So what are some of your very favorite things that people love to get from you or that chefs love to get or that you love to, you know, sell? Well, certainly we're Allium specialists. But I love growing squash. It's one of my passions to grow unusual and interesting squashes. My personal favorite vegetable out of all vegetables is the eggplant. I love the beauty, the style of the eggplant. And I love the fact that so many people don't know what to do with an eggplant. Uh, I love growing, of course, the heirloom uh, tomatoes. We grow peas. We grow so many items. We have a small orchard on the farm as well. We just had our first pressing of apple cider, and it turned out great. Uh, we grow special varieties of apples, which are actually specifically designed to produce hard cider. However, we blend them to make a pretty special apple cider. I love that. So let me ask you a question. You got to be a hundred percent honest. You know, I got a lot of energy when I first came to your table and everything. What did you really think? 
I did not know what to think. I didn't know who you were. I Who was this energetic lady who was just coming after me? I believe I had other customers at the time. I'm probably. And and you just stepped right on them and, yes. and grabbed all my attention. But uh, I thought we hit it off that very first time. We really did. And uh, yeah, it was it was a handful. You were definitely overwhelming. I'm a handful but, and I'm overwhelming. That yep. is a good description. And thank you for being honest. I love that. I love that. I just knew at the time he was like, who is she? And she's on social media and she's tagging me. You know, I love it. And I'm sure people think at, that. At the time, I was fairly ignorant of social media. Right. So so that that played into it, too. But actually, after working with you all these years, uh, I've become much more in tune with those things. I see the value of it. I've gained many followers specifically because of interacting with you. And I'm sure it's brought me lots of business. I can't even imagine the number of people who don't tell me. They came through you. Oh, I love that. Well, thank you. Tell the shallot story. I mean, one of my favorite things about you is this lesson that you taught me about shallots. And so often we try to do it on stories, but we can't do it justice because it's 15-second sound bites. But tell us the shallot story. Yeah, we, we just never have enough time to fully explore right. this complex story. So over the years, people's ignorance about shallots has been compounded by uh, – industry's greed. There is a true shallot is grown vegetatively. In other words, from bulbs. It's not grown from seeds. Some years ago, uh, seed growers and farmers realized that there was an onion that tastes almost exactly like a shallot. It could be grown by seeds, which is a much, much simpler process. So they cleverly, as, as industry does, renamed it the shallot. In America, that's the only shallot most of us know because it's cheap to produce, easy to produce, and has quite a good return. What we don't realize is that's not a shallot at all. It's an onion, and we call that the Dutch shallot, and this is the one you buy in grocery stores. Off to the side, only known to gourmets and farmers, is the French shallot. This is the true shallot. It's a long, thin shallot, and it's grown vegetatively, as I said, from bulbs. The return is poor compared to the Dutch shallot. But it's the difference between a fine wine in a bottle and a box of cheap wine. It's, that's, that's the difference. It, the quality is so subtle and the flavor is so unique that you just can't compare it to anything else. So the French shallot actually comes in many, many varieties. I grow two varieties, the French red and the French gray, the French red itself has many varieties, such as Jermor, Jersey Long, Banana Shallots, uh, so many different varieties. I only grow Jersey Long. In the, in the U.S., most people don't even know that there is a difference between shallots. In fact, even seed companies are still offering French shallots from seed, which is just not possible. So when we see shallots at the grocery store, they're really not shallots. They're really not. They're an onion, and they're a very good onion. And uh, they taste very much like a shallot. In fact, you'll see chefs, I believe Anthony Bourdain at one time said that the shallot was the cigarette of cooking. But he was only talking about using the Dutch shallot instead of onions. Right. Even he didn't realize that there was this special shallot out there. Or perhaps he did. Right. But that was what he was talking about. And uh, in France, as a matter of fact, where they're very passionate about their food, it's illegal to call the Dutch shallot a shallot. 
Why? Because it's not a shallot. Right. right. <laughs> so if you, you know, you're listening and you're like, oh, my God, I really want to try a real shallot, where does one find one? That is very, very difficult. Uh, even my, my small farm is one of the bigger producers in the area. Wow. And many people get their seed from me originally and are growing it now. But you're going to have to go to a farmer's market. You're going to have to find local farmers. You might receive it in the CSA. There is no big listing of true shallot farmers. Okay. You're going to have to dig us up, and okay. you'll be well rewarded when you find us because they are tasty. I love it. Come to Chicago. It's another reason to Chica- come to Chicago. It's another reason we're a fantastic city. Shallots, among other things. Yes. And hurry, so, because every year they sell out fast. Oh, right. They are rare. And I will definitely do this. When they're in for next year, I'm going to be announcing it like crazy. We might do a whole No Crumbs Left meetup. Um, I'd love to spread the word about yes, shallots. Yes. Too and many my, people don't know. Tell me this. I want to say a couple things in closing. I know that you have a true love for Japanese vegetables food farming. Give us a l- couple minutes on that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, uh, it's, it's one of the cigarette sides of Froggy Meadow. I, constant, I travel to Japan on a yearly basis searching for seeds, searching varieties for varieties of plants that you can't find here, and we grow them all. They're, they're subtle little bits of Japan all over my market table. And you go and you learn about the—just uh, tell us a little bit about that explore. Oh, oh. I, I've traveled all over the country. I've been going there for 20 years now. I go once or twice a year. Uh, I no longer tread the tourist trails. I rent cars. I drive up into the mountains, into the farms, uh, searching out, meeting people. I love the culture. It's, uh, it's a great place, and uh, the food culture there is fabulous. Quality levels are so high. For instance, Japanese fast food is as good as a fine Japanese restaurant in the United wow. States. Yeah, the freshness of the ingredients over there is amazing. Well, I love this in doing this podcast and you and I talking a little bit about it. And it just, you know, it's just like I came up to you that one time and it's like, you know, apparently he's knocking other people over. I'm talking about <laughs> my enthusiasm for all things onion. Um, and then to learn all of these wonderful things about you. Like, you know, I just learned the other day about the your love for Japanese vegetables and that you have, you're a very complex person. So, um, in closing, we know people find you at the Green City Markets. You're there, and we know it's coming to the close, but right. it's there Saturdays, Wednesdays, and then it's Thursdays, it's some Thursdays in the summer. Yeah, there are some Thursdays at Wrigley Field in the summer. That mm-hmm. is finished for the year, and we are finishing our Wednesday-Saturday schedule right now. However, we will be transitioning into our indoor season, which mm-hmm. is at the Peggy Notobart uh, Nature Museum. That's 8 to 1 on selected Saturdays through the month. I'd suggest you go to the Green City Market website to get the exact dates. And then what is your website for your farm? Uh, I have a fairly outdated website that I don't keep up to date. It's froggymeadowfarm.com. In fact, because of you, Mm -hmm. I've become so entrenched in social media, I rely on that for my marketing and exposure much more than the website. I love it. I mean, isn't it all about that human connection? It is. Isn't it it that you're learning from me and I'm learning from you? Yeah. And that we've been able to form this wonderful friendship. And I, I love you, and I'm so proud to have you. I just like kind of want to tear up. I'm so proud to have you here, and I'm excited that this podcast will go out, and I know that it'll affect um, people in wonderful ways, and I know it'll be another way that you're making a difference. I sure hope so. I, I really want to connect with a lot of folks out there. It's it's become the one of the passions of farming to show my passion for farming to other people and make that connection. 
I love that. You did, you did an amazing job here today. So you guys come find me over at No Crumbs Left. I'm on Facebook. Instagram is my favorite place to be contacted. Um, and also my blog, um, nocrumbsleft.com or dom, dot net. And everybody, have a great day.